Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Mind Your Money. I'm one of your co-hosts, Douglas Bonaparte, the president of Bonafide Wealth. I'm Morgan Housel. I'm the author of The Psychology of Money and the new book, Same as Ever. Good to see you. Great to see you too, Morgan. So it's been a pretty eventful uh, week, uh, to say the least. We lost one of, uh, one of the legends, one of the greatest to do it, one of the greatest of all time, Charlie Munger. So let's spend a little bit of time here in the front of our episode talking about his legacy. You know, Morgan, you're, you're our resident you know, financial historian here. I'm sure you've probably touched every piece of literature. You probably know all the quotes. What is the legacy of Charlie Munger to you? Yeah, it's one of the, you know, Munger was four weeks away from his 100th birthday. And a lot of people in the investing world have been following him, or at least what he's said, what he's written for the last 70 years. And it's really interesting. Buffett is in this camp too, of someone who has like that broad of a body of knowledge to pull from. And both Buffett and Munger were very generous with their contributions in terms of sharing what they've learned. Munger, despite being 99 years old and in a wheelchair up until literally the day that he died, was on Zoom calls with people, sharing what he knows, learning other things himself, reading. I have two friends who met with Munger in the last six months. Both of them said he was as sharp as he's ever been, reading as much as he's ever read, share, wanting to share what he's learned more than anything else. And I just love that his life was so genuine to what he wanted to do that until the day he dies at age 99, he's doing the exact same thing that he was doing 30 or 40 years ago. And I think to that point, I really think the core of Munger's legacy is being able to witness someone who was completely independent in terms of just like intellectual independence for their entire life. Now, Munger, and this is the trait that rubbed people the wrong way sometimes, which is something that he talked a lot about too, but he pandered to nobody. He did yeah. not answer to any, he did not have to go with the company line on anything. He said exactly what he wanted to say, how he wanted to say it, to whom he wanted to say it to. And he did not care if you disagreed with it or if you thought it made him look bad. So his views on Wall Street, on crypto, on politics, on religion, he just shared his unvarnished views. And uh, it was a great thing to see. To actually witness someone be completely intellectually independent is actually very rare. Because mm -hmm. even a lot of billionaire CEOs who you would think they have financial independence, but they are so attached to their company's line and not wanting to offend employees, not wanting to offend. Munger was just, it was just completely no holds barred. And then the other thing that I think is really unique about him was more than maybe anyone else we've ever seen in modern times. He was a multidisciplinary thinker. So yes, he was an investor. He was also a lawyer. Um, but that was the small fraction of what he actually spent his time researching and what filled his mind. I think he read as much about biology and physics and chemistry and astronomy and politics and like all these disparate fields as much as he would of anything else in business. And he was the, just an absolute expert at connecting the dots between those fields. So he could learn something from chemistry and from physics or from John Adams and tie, immediately tie it back to everything that's going on today. And that is a very rare skill. But I think a lot of the greatest investors you see have that because their skill is not understanding investing. Their skill is understanding how the world works and how all the dots connect. To me, those are the two biggest legacies that Munger will leave behind, intellectual independence and multidisciplinary learning. Yeah, his his dedication to lifelong learning, 
pull up any article in the last handful of days. And I think that's the number one thing you're going to see. Um, I like what you had to say about, you know, his legacy being these things. It's almost how difficult it is to begin your journey, almost thinking about the legacy, like he's leaving his legacy as he goes and to ultimately put in that much time. He's got some of the best quotes out there. And I think we're going to play a little game and a little bit of who said is a Charlie Munger or a celebrity or something like that. That should be a lot of fun. But, you know, in, in doing a little prep work for this, there were things I didn't know about him. I, I did not know other than serving, uh, you know, in the military during World War II. I didn't know he was trained at you know, Harvard Law and he was accepted um, without even finishing his undergraduate studies, which right. is super interesting considering his biggest takeaway here in his life is the dedication to learning. So uh, you love to see that. Um, and I, I just loved, you know, I don't know if unhinged is the word, but definitely when he spoke his mind, I think you get some of the absolute best quotes, certainly uh, in the last, uh, let's say, decade, you got probably some of the funniest things to ever come out of his mouth in an investor conference. Um, but for me, uh, you know, as a financial advisor who has to help clients navigate very long periods of time when it comes to investing, you know, both him and Warren are probably our best friends in the entire industry because everything that they put out there, whether it's like, look, you know, you don't need to be like us. You just need to be patient and be an investor, let's say, in you know, the broader market, you know, um, Warren and Charlie would tell you, you know, go, go invest in the S and P 500 and, and call it a day. And if you can just stay disciplined, uh, you might win quote unquote, win the game of investing here. And I also love the invest in what, you know, philosophy, right? Like the more I think about, and I'm not a great stock picker whatsoever, but just keeping that in mind that, Hey, if I actually do invest in some of the things that I believe in, I know it actually does tend to make for some pretty good investments. Um, and I will not be revealing uh, the things that I'm investing in here. Um, they, they, they just, you know, they're just things that I love. So why don't we do this? Why don't we actually go over to the game here of who said it? Um, we're going to go through six quotes and try and guess whether it's Charlie Munger or another person who said it. And I think it starts off with you uh, asking me the first of six. Yes. All right. So here's the first quote, Doug. The quote is, there is no better teacher than history in determining the future. There are answers worth a billion dollars in a $30 history book. Doug, was that Munger or Buffett who said that? <laughs> this is impossible. All right. I'm going to go. I'm going with Warren. Uh, it was it was actually Munger who said that. They that but this one this one easily could have gone either way. Uh, and I think it's I think it's so true. There's this great little anecdote from Munger where he talked about. And this is just in the last couple of years. He said that he read Barons every day for 40 years, and after reading it for like 30 years, he found one stock idea that made him a billion dollars. And he he has this quote where he's like, "That's how you make a billion dollars reading Barons. It takes for, it takes 40 years." But that's, I, to his point too, like. You know, in a in like what what is a Baron sub cost eight dollars or whatever it is per 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 edition, and if you just immerse yourself in those kind of things for life, the returns can be astronomical. Real quick, do do you, you know, one could argue that's finding a needle in a haystack. You got to spend forty years sifting through you know print of Barons or whatever publication to come up there. You but you need to have trained yourself to be able to look for that. Yeah. Right. Does that come from what he did or from the actual just reading through it and getting it like 
cart and horse kind of thing. That's my question to you. Like, how do you I develop think... the skills to be able to go through 40 years of barons and pull out the billion dollar nugget? I think that's the kind of thing where it's like, well, like if you look at professional athletes, a lot of what sets them apart beyond their natural ability is the focus on what they do. And they are the ones, Kobe and whatnot was the kind of person who would like, he's going to train 10 hours a day and no one else is yep. willing to do that. That's why he's better. And I think there are, there's a lot of truth for people like Buffett and Munger who a lot of the reason they were so successful or, and, and still are so successful is because they're willing to, to put in the reps of just sitting yep. there and reading for 10 hours a day for 70 years looking for these things. Everyone else is going to get bored and give up and want to go do something else. And I think it was just so core to their identity and their personality to want to just immerse themselves in these words all day long, that it was just, it's just the effort to set them apart. All right, you're up. Here we go. Uh, it's going to be who said it, Munger or Shaquille O'Neal. It's not about how much you make. It's about how much you keep. Save 75% of your earnings and put the rest away. Use the other 25% as you please. This is, this is really hard. This could, that could easily be either of them. I'm going to, I'm going to say it was probably Shaq who said that one. I don't know if Munger it's, would ever talk about saving 75% of your income, but Shaq who has a shorter career probably did. Yep. It's the Shaqtus. You got that right. Easy to get those two mixed up. A lot I, in common met, between those two. I met Shaq this summer and, uh, He's probably one of the funniest public speakers I've I've ever met oh, yeah, or he's have seen in my life. Like if you thought Charlie was getting unhinged with anything he was saying, you haven't met Shaquille O'Neal. And he's a, uh, he's a pretty amazing investor too. I was going to say, he's one of those people who's going to make, who made a fortune on the court and is going to make more money off the court. And there aren't many no of those question. like it. It's, it's much more the opposite. They make a lot of money on the court and lose everything off the court with their dumb investments. But Shaq, Michael Jordan, there's a, there's a couple of them who really do it right and have a good head on their shoulders. Yeah, he, he talked a lot about uh, being an early investor in Google, but unfortunately having to give a lot of those shares away uh, through his divorce, which was an interesting spin. All right, Doug, number three. The quote is, the cool thing about reading is that when you read a short story, or you read something that takes your mind and expands where your thoughts can go, that is powerful. Was that Munger or our girl Taylor Swift? I'm going to end up going over three on this, but I'm going with Taylor Swift. That was that 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 was Taylor Swift. She's a nut, she's a. I I always love when A-list celebrities kind of uh, avoid the idea that they're just, a, they're just a body, they're just a figure, they're just a face, and they actually have a lot of intelligence behind them. Taylor Swift is definitely one of them, where if you listen to her interview, she's, she's, very, she's very smart. And uh, that's, that's not always the case with musicians, of course, but like she's, she's, she's quite intelligent. I like that. I, I think you find it with those who have like these very, very long careers. Like she's 20 years into this. And, and look, there, there's actual parallels between, dare I say, Shaq and Charlie Munger and Taylor Swift and Charlie Munger. You know, you can point to here in Taylor and Charlie, like look how long, I mean, Taylor Swift will have a 40, 50 year career. Yeah. Like she yeah. will keep reinventing herself. And at the, I mean, it's insane to think she's literally the biggest star on the globe, and she's been at this for 20 years. And she, and she yeah. might not even be peaking right now. And she's 33 or whatever. She yeah. can easily keep this going for two or three more decades. It's pretty wild. For sure, for sure. All right, you're up. It's going to be choosing between Charlie Munger, of course, and Tom Brady. The quote is, I have a memory and I can't, excuse me, I have a memory and I can just eliminate mistakes when they come up because I've already made them. That's, that's got to be Brady. 
Is that right? Brady it is. The All goat. Right. Yeah. The goat but this of is, football. But what's interesting is that Munger has an almost identical quote where he says, I love rubbing my nose in my mistakes and figuring out what I did wrong and just like making sure that I learn as much from that. It's a very, very similar quote. You're up. You ready? Yep. Sorry. Here okay. we go. I'm up. Here you go. All right. We're going to go with Munger or – nope, let me start that over again. Why does it say Doug guesses on this one? No, because I'm supposed to read and then and you guess. So just, just keep your <laughs> mouth shut and let, let me do it. All right, Doug, next one. The quote is, when you have your own retirement account and your friendly advisor suggests you put all the money into Bitcoin, just say no. Was that Munger or me? I, I hate both of them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, please don't be you. I, I know, I know Munger really hates Bitcoin, but the way that quote structured, oh God, I'm going with Munger. That was, that was Munger. That was not me. I would, I would say the same thing myself. Um, <laughs> I, I, I might phrase it a little bit differently. I, I might say, just say hell no or something like that. But um, yes, that was, that was our friend Munger. All right. Two for three. Here you go. Last one. Uh, you take this one. Y you got me beat by a question here. And uh, I think you're probably going to do that. Is it Munger or Pauli Gaultieri from The Sopranos? The quote is, there's lots of things to take into account. Do you even know what your EBITDA is? I, I can't imagine Munger saying that, so I'm going to go with Polly. But I'm also shocked that Polly is talking about EBITDA on the show. No one else is going to understand what that means on the show. Wild that indeed Polly said that on on The Sopranos. All of um, all and, of and, three people watching it understood what he was talking about. <laughs> Biggest letdown of a finale. That's my opinion there. <laughs> um, but Munger was pretty close to that, right? He also. You know, refer to, uh, you know, EBITDA as bullshit, I believe, is, is paraphrasing uh, his take on that. Um, yeah, he didn't think very highly of it. Um, as a matter of fact, along those lines, we actually have that quote um, in 2003 at a Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting. Let's play that. Yeah, I think you would understand any presentation using the word EBITDA. If every time you saw that word... You just substituted the phrase bullshit earnings. I knew he'd do it sooner or later, folks. <laughs> All right. Rest in peace, Charlie Munger. You truly, truly were one of the greatest investors of our time. And uh, your legacy uh, will forever be remembered by more than just the investment community. We're going to switch gears a little bit here and talk about a new report uh, from UBS about the path to billionaire status. According to that report, new billionaires minted during this year's study period accumulated more wealth through inheritance than through entrepreneurship. It's the first time that this has happened in nine editions of UBS's Billionaire Ambitions report. There's a few things to unpack here, Morgan. Um, my biggest question to you would be, is this what the new pathway to wealth is going to look like moving forward? That all this wealth has been accumulated now. There's more billionaires and it's just going to trickle down. Has it become that much harder to create that unicorn and become that billionaire through, I don't know, grabbing a shovel and digging dirt? 
I mean, I, I think you should expect this kind of thing to keep occurring. So much of the mega wealth is concentrated in the baby boomer generation. And as they pass the baton onto their kids, like forget the billionaires too. You could expand this and just say, like, what, what is the amount that's transferred uh, from boomers to their children over the next 20 years? It's trillions and trillions of dollars. It's an enormous yep. sum of money. And on, on, on one hand, you could say like, look, that can be great because we know that the millennial generation and Gen Z to, to a lesser extent are financially not in as great a shape as the baby boomers were at a similar age. Correct. And so if there was kind of like this mass hoarding of financial assets by their parents that eventually goes down to them, like, okay, great. And is that going to take pressure off of the millennials who are buried in student debt, who can't buy a home, whatever it might be? Uh, okay, great. But you know, that, that, that trend has already been occurring for some time. When you're talking about billionaires, it's really interesting because I think most most Americans, this is not black and white, but I think most Americans do not mind the self-made billionaire. They do not look down upon Bezos, Gates, Zuckerberg. If there is any kind of wealth that irks people, it's the billionaire who did not deserve what they made. And maybe that's the wrong phrase because everyone has the right to give their money to their kids, but it's, it's the billionaire who inherited it all. Just say, it, can, just say it. Call them Nepo babies. Cool. <laughs> the, those, those Nepo babies. I think that is the kind of thing where people are like inheritance taxes right now. It's, it, 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 it's, it's, it's not the self-made person. So I, you know, I can imagine a report like this, if it got broader, turning into like a pitchforks and torches moment of people being like, this is screwed up. We have how many billionaires who've never worked a day in their life. That's the kind of thing where you could get a lot of Americans fired up. Yeah, it's maybe maybe social media is to blame here because now you have the ability, you know, the Nepo baby billionaire, you know, before you could post some glitz and glam on Instagram. You didn't really know about that. Now now you could see what's happening here, you know, handing out money, flying on the private jets, you know, just the absolute and plus we got cool stuff, man, like the Bugattis of today. You can drop three million bucks on a car and, and show it on Instagram to the whole world. The good things. Doug, what do you think when you are working with client who's trying to think about how to pass their money to their children, what are yeah. the, what are the biggest issues that come up, whether they're social or financial issues? It's a great question. I think the trend right now is the difference between lifetime inheritance. So being able to provide that money or that benefit uh, to their children during their lives or at death. And the trend is moving towards watching their children enjoy that wealth today. Um, you probably know the Wall Street Journal article from a few years ago kind of pointing out this trend. Um, so that's a great book. Uh, a There's a great book called. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt you. There's a no. there's a great book called Die with Zero that talks about yeah. this too. Of like, if you're gonna leave money to your children, that's great, that's fine. Give yeah. it to them when they need it in their 30s and 40s. Don't wait until you die and they're in their yeah. 70s. Uh, give it to them when it actually matters, rather than hoarding it until the day you die. Yeah, there there's a lot of uh, you know, you get to this time of year, get to the end of the year. There there are clients who are receiving those annual gifts as part of their parents' estate planning. You know, in terms of and and they're very grateful. You know, fortunately, you know these aren't these aren't nepo babies. These are just very very grateful. You know, children who who are able to you know enjoy their life a little bit better because you know their parents work very hard, have everything they need. Um, you actually see more down to earth type of behavior than you do uh, overly privileged type stuff. Um, so it's a great question. That that's the trend that I see. 
Um, it definitely calls into play, you know, greater needs of estate planning. Um, that's when you start to bring in the attorneys and find the most effective ways to go about leaving those gifts. There's a lot of tax planning and estate planning uh, mechanisms to put into play. So uh, there's a good deal of work to do there. Um, and it's some of the more complex stuff. So um, it keeps us busy. It keeps yeah. a lot of people busy. So from the last episode to this episode, there's been some big personal news in your life. Um, you know, if it wasn't uh, great enough that we have the psychology of money on this earth, a, a smash hit, we have same as ever book number two, here it is. It's out obviously killing it as well. I got some questions for you. I got the opportunity for the author who's here. Um, pulled out a few lessons. I want to go through them with you here. Um, yep. one of them being unless you've experienced hard lessons, lessons will never settle in. So this is a big one. And I want to know how can it impact people's investments, decisions, and finances? Like people want to be able to take what you're writing here and put it into their everyday lives, or at least into their investment or financial lives. I think everyone intuitively assumes that they are trying to make sense of the world independently. Like you're just looking at how the world works and you're coming up with the actual way that it actually works. It's really healthy to acknowledge that everyone is just a mirror of their experiences in life and how you think the world works is largely based off of where, when you were born to whom you were born and mm -hmm. the experiences that you've had throughout life, whether it was, you know, experiencing nine 11 as a teenager or as COVID as a father of two young children, where you are in life when you're experiencing these big events is going to have a profound impact on you. That's going to be different from generation to generation. And so everyone goes through life thinking that they are, they are making sense of the world independently, but we're all products of our experiences. The big way that that impacts people's finances is that you have to understand that what I want as an investor might be different from what you want. And, and for everybody, we're all, we've all had different lives, different experiences that show us different ways of how the world works. And I think a lot of the time in investing, when you have people who are disagreeing about how to invest or how to spend, your, how to spend their money, they're not actually disagreeing with each other. They're not actually debating. It's people who have experienced something different in life, who have a different risk tolerance, different social aspirations, different time horizons. And then when you see someone doing something different than you, I think a good question is not to ask, why are you doing that? It's to ask, what have you experienced in life that makes you think that? And if I had the same experience, would I be thinking and doing the same thing as you? And I think nine times out of 10, the answer is yes. And so it really just pushes you to try to figure out who you are and what your goals are, what your risk tolerance is, rather than assuming that what works for you is also going to work for me. All right. So here's a quote right from the book. The behaviors that never change are history's most powerful lessons because they preview what to expect in the future. Yeah, there's a great quote that I use at the beginning of the book from Voltaire where he says, history never repeats itself, but man always does. Which is like, I think that's, if you're, a, if you're a fan or a student of history, that's what keeps on happening over and over again, is that if you look at what's happened in financial markets 100 years ago, even 300 years ago, the details are different. Of course, the economy has evolved, new technologies, but the behaviors have not changed whatsoever. It's the same today as it was 100 years ago. And reading about the Great Depression in the 1920s, it's the exact same things that people thought and did in 2008 or in 2020. And so those things that never change, I think, are the most important things to pay attention to, not just in investing, but for a lot of areas in life. Because you know that no matter what surprises us in the future, 
in terms of the details about what's the new technology, who's going to win the election. Those things we don't know, but we know for certain that regardless of what happens, these set of core behaviors are always going to be with us. Awesome. Hence the name of the book, same as ever. All right. Third one. It's impossible to predict the future, but human behavior provides a stable guideline for making choices. So more about human behavior. It seems to be a common theme here. Yeah, there's nothing in the book that talks about here's what's going to happen in the future in terms of demographics or technology or things that like might change. There's none of that. It's all just these behaviors. The book is 23 little stories about behaviors that are impactful in the world and in the economy for people and will definitely be with us 100 years from now, just like they were 100 years ago. I think you could come up with thousands of these behaviors. There's a lot about human behavior that never changes. That is just an ingrained part of how people make sense of the world particularly around things like greed, risk, fear, and opportunity. And so that's how this book is, is structured. 23 little stories about things that will never change and definitely will be part of our future. Morgan, what was your favorite, favorite part of writing this book? Being done with it. Does that, does that, does that count? Yeah. No, I, 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 I love, I love putting these together. I knew you were going to say that. I, I, I love putting these things together. I think it's fun to craft stories. I always say I write for an audience of one, which is me. I just write things that I would want to read and I tell stories that I think are interesting. So I, I genuinely enjoy the process of putting these together. I love it, man. Congratulations, buddy. It is always a joy uh, to read your literature. It's more of a joy to get to talk about it with you and get into the inner workings of it. Um, wish you the absolute biggest success here. I hope it crushes that first book. Um, that's, a tall, that's a tall order. That's it's a tall, tall order. order. I don't know if we're going to get there, but I appreciate it. Thank you, Doug. You know what? I, I, I hope we do. Um, can't thank you all enough for listening in to another episode of Mind Your Money. It's always fun uh, to chop it up here with my friend Morgan Housel. We're going to catch you on the next one.